Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 142 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Special shout out to Scott from The Cafe, who helped facilitate the interview here today. Really appreciate it. Sean's got an incredible album out, and it's available now, and he also talked about a couple websites and... Um, I didn't get them on the recording. We had some Zoom issues, but I wanted to mention them so people could go to them. And I also will have the links listed in the description of the podcast and at mandolinsabeer.com. And those websites are pipers.ie and itma.ie. And those will give you some traditional music archives and a Piper's archive with different ways to uh, work on traditional Irish music. So, And I believe um, Sean has a... Uh, hand in the working of those they're really great websites I've checked them out myself so check them out too speaking of checking things out my buddy roger simonoff has given mandolins and beer listeners 10 percent off single sets of strings the packs of strings are already discounted but this way you can pick up one set of strings and check them out and you definitely should he's put a lot of time and thought and science into these strings straight up strings engineered with compensated downloads for optimum balance every note of every chord so go to straightupstrings.com now and enter the code MANDOBEER, M-A-N-D-O-B-E-E-R, all caps, at Straight Up Strings. Get yourself 10% off single sets of strings. And also, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. It's awesome. Thank you so much to Roger for offering this to the mandolins of beer listeners. Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music today. Who, you ask? Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. That's right, the new Shoro courses out there. The courses are all high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part here is if you join any of Peghead Nation's video courses, now you get your first month for free. Go to pegheadnation.com, use that promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, not caps, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Be sure to also follow them on Instagram. And be sure to go to Elderly Instruments' website. They've got up, unless somebody has purchased it, they built the uh, 50th anniversary mandolin. Um, the people who used to work at Elderly, they built this beautiful mandolin. And Elderly Instruments is also a sponsor. They're your trusted source for new used in vintage fretted and stringed instruments for the experienced beginner player their vast selection of mandolins guitars banjos ukuleles and did i mention the mandolins includes all of the accessories and books to go with them all instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help they're in their 50th year they're family owned and operated they ship worldwide and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com or give them a phone call at 517-372-7880 if you go to that website, you might just see one or two Pava mandolins, another sponsor of this year's episode, Pava, dedicated to building for the impassioned player in Austin, Texas. All right, sorry this is getting to you a little bit late. Had some internet, internet uh, upload issues yesterday, and uh, now we are, we're, I think we're rolling, and this should be up here today now. So have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.
All right, now it is my pleasure to welcome from halfway around the world here to the podcast, Sean Keegan. Sean, how are you? I'm not too bad, Daniel. How are you? Doing good, man. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I'm very much looking forward to it. I, I have to um, I have to give Scott a uh, shout out from the cafe. Um, I heard your song. sent me a text like a day later and was like hey man you i don't know if you'd be interested but this guy this album's great and uh yeah i reached out to you and you got a really busy schedule coming up so i appreciate you squeezed the time in to do this interview today oh thanks very much yeah as i said thanks very much for asking it i'm really looking forward to it and yeah same thing uh shout out to scott um for um he sent me a message and asked would i be interested and you know i'm a big fan of the the podcast listen to it um and so it was a, a real treat to be asked so thanks very much absolutely man now the date the album comes out let's uh, um is it the third of july uh well it's technically it's uh out now oh um, is it really okay cool uh, it, it's online um on Bandcamp, and uh, the physical copies uh, have turned up and they've started to be um posted out um but the the album's officially going to be launched on the third um of the month uh on sunday uh, at the skullsari willie clancy the willie clancy summer school or is it's kind of effectively known willie week <laughs> uh, which is a regular festival um here in Milton Maui and Clare uh, every year um and a lot of people will launch their albums at that so I'm kind of using that that opportunity to uh, to launch the album and a, a good friend of mine is a great musician Sean Potts will be kind of launching it on my behalf so that's coming up in a couple of days we'll be heading down to um to Meltdown for a few tunes and meeting up with friends and it's the first time uh, the festival's been in person since the the pandemic so um the last two years that the festival was run online um big focus of the festival is teaching um as much as kind of gigs and uh, anything else uh, and um, concerts so um all of that kind of moved online this is the first time that everyone's been back in Mailtown. and um, so we're kind of looking forward to it it's going to be a lot of fun and what i really love about the irish music uh and it's very similar i guess in maybe bluegrass circles and old time circles as well but it really is a um a, a gathering sort of tradition you know what i mean like these sessions that take place all over you know, it's great to see these things happening again. Absolutely, yeah. There's a big social aspect to it, and that that's something that I think um, the traditional Irish music community has been starved of um, for the last little while because of all the, these kind of restrictions and seeing them come come back in, uh, everything coming back to um, slightly, you know, slightly different but similar to to the way it was before. Um, and there, there is a real kind of um, sense of excitement about the the festival. Um, season coming up in Ireland and being able to meet up and uh, get together and the kind of sharing of uh, of music and sharing of tunes and repertoire and listening to um, to each other and kind of passing on that 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 music orally is um, a, a focal point of of the tradition. So, yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of starting to see that with the um, the bluegrass scene uh, uh, as well. Like my, I kind of. I suppose got to know that from the outside of watching it online, buying CDs and and, uh, and such um, from being on this kind of side of the pond. Um, but yeah, 
starting to stick the head more into the kind of social scene of that and going to a few festivals and concerts and you see how much of a kind of uh, um, cultural thing and um, so sociological thing it is as well that you know everyone's kind of meeting up and um, and, and interacting and it's a it's a very much communal kind of uh, uh, thing as well as just the music so um, yeah it's there's definitely something we're looking forward to this summer of all the festivals coming back online and, and back in person and, and being able to kind of meet up have a few pints play some tunes uh, with each other's you know all the other stuff that doesn't doesn't quite quite work uh, over a webcam. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we we're when we were just signing into talking here, we're doing this over Zoom today and we are like Zoom was a game changer and really did make things, um, you know, it made it it made it a possible for people to take lessons from teachers from all over the world or, or you know, or like even it was surprising to imagine like who you could reach out to to take a, a music lesson from because of technology. And on the same side of that, though, it just it's it as great as it was. It's just nothing like the uh, the real in-person thing. Absolutely, yeah. I completely agree with it. And it, you know, it was that kind of um, strange time where yeah, everyone was in the same boat, and you see a lot of um, 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 prolific exponents changing the way that they were kind of interacting with their audience because you know you weren't going out and you weren't touring, um, and people doing kind of like online um, um, resources and um, setting up things online. Loads of great musicians and great luthiers as well, kind of putting up um, videos um, um, showing the kind of their process and um, and a lot of times just free content um, to kind of keep people going during the, the pandemic. I know for the, the previous. Willie Weeks, the previous Willie Clancy um, um, festivals that, that I mentioned, the ones that were online, the places like the Irish Traditional Music Archive and in Peterborough and the Pipers Clubs, uh, Pipers Club in Dublin, went through a lot of archive footage, digitized it, uploaded it onto um, social platforms so that, you know, in lieu of the one hour uh, or um, one and a half hour concert that there would be that day um, for the fiddle recital at the Willie Clancy Week, they put up an hour's worth of um, archive material up online. So, um there's an awful lot of, I think, benefit and, you know, great stuff that that's come of it in terms of like the, the advancement of the technology and yeah, the Zoom and everything was a, was a game changer in allowing people to kind of still be doing something, but there's nothing like being up in person and it's not it's not the, the, the same thing and you miss that kind of real um, social aspect of it, um, of among your peers uh, uh, and among your comrades of kind of people to who are in the same situation as you, but living in different parts of the um, the country or different parts of the world kind of, kind of coming together. And that um, that thing of seeing the, the, those ones that are above you, those um, musicians that you really admire and seeing them firsthand and um, sitting there in front of them, is, it's not the same as watching them on YouTube or listening to them on a, an album. So yeah, it's great to have that all kind of coming back. And a great supplement, too, because now that we have this, you know, I mean, somebody can sign up and take a lesson from the United States and take a, you know, a Zoom music lesson with you. And, I, you know, so it's great that everybody has become um, familiar with technology and almost forced people to like QR codes. You know, when I remember yes. the first gig I played back here in Charleston. It was outdoors and every menu was a QR code. They weren't handing menus out. And I'm like, oh, man. 
I'm going to make up a bunch of cards with our QR code for Venmo tips. And it was a game changer because now everybody knows how to use it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It just becomes that, that kind of, uh, yeah, a part of the technology that you you kind of, you interact with so much, it becomes almost invisible. And, you know, the, the, those things have um, loads of benefits that you can kind of see being really useful kind of moving forward and, and kind of sharing and disseminating out information online. And yeah, it's been, uh, it, it's kind of, added an awful lot but it's still nice to kind of meet up in person and, and for all the music stuff and the other thing i want to mention too is you mentioned there's physical copies of this album and i am a huge proponent of the the physical copy because it, or i mean i'm even just i guess just buying a copy for one like going to band camp and buying one as opposed to streaming it because it makes such a huge difference for artists especially independent artists to have people you know $10 might not seem like it's a big deal to to you but or you know to the person the consumer but like you know artist sells a thousand copies at $10 a piece <laughs> you know that's a, it's a significant significant thing but your liner notes for this album are wonderful man and i think that's uh, uh, that's a great thing too you know so bravo to that oh uh, thanks uh, thanks very much yeah they're just um kind of sat down at the end of the whole kind of process and reflecting on where the tunes came kind of came from and uh um where where was the kind of inspiration for that and wanted that to kind of be reflected in the um sleeve notes i will say though that the digital version of the sleeve notes is available with the digital download because i understand that some people uh can't um uh you know the physical copy isn't practical for wherever they are or immediacy of it and it's always been a frustration of mine that buying something in digital and you don't get to read where the tunes are from or that get any kind of context of it so i've kind of i've added them in um um if, if if anyone wants them but yeah i'm again huge kind of fan of the the physical uh, um copy of it i just think it goes back to the old days of kind of growing up with lps and the, the physicality of uh, of the medium and you know taking it out and reading the sleeve notes was always a kind of a part of learning an album and understanding and everything that was that, that was going on on it um uh, as well as just kind of listening back to it so yeah i kind of like having the, the the physical copy myself and put a good bit of effort in trying to get that um that package together nicely yeah well it's awesome it's great so where did you uh where did you grow up so um i'm from london originally um my parents are from um over here in, in ireland from um, leitrim and longford and they moved over in late 70s and i kind of uh i think they had plans to move back at some point as most irish um did back then but then i came along and that kind of um, <laughs> so yeah I, I grew up in um uh, in london and that's how i kind of got started with the music um my parents were from um leitrim and longford and Again, like a lot of Irish parents, they wanted to have their children to have a kind of connection with back at home. So I was brought to a number of things. I was brought to GAA, you know, you know Irish football. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Brought to those. My dad was a um, big GAA player. Um, so I was brought to that as a kid for, for a little bit. My sister was brought to dancing, but we both brought to uh, Irish music lessons. Um, and there was a very um, charismatic and very, um, um, I suppose, culturally important um music teacher in London at the time by the name of Brendan Mulcair um, and so they took me to him at an early age and I kind of bit you know like I I, I, I enjoyed it um, very much and it was that's what kind of got me started in, in music was uh, um, being brought to those lessons with Brendan at a young age. You dedicated the memory of this album to him too. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's right. So um, Brendan unfortunately passed away um, during lockdown. Um, uh, he had a long um, um, battle with cancer, but um, and uh, and I suppose I, when I the the album was a kind of a lockdown project. Like much many people out there, you know, the, the curtains were drawn very very quickly, and everything just went to suddenly kind of lockdown, doing um, um, doing nothing. And I'm, as I said, my family are from London. Um, my um, wife's family are, are from the states, and we were both based here, so we weren't seeing anyone and couldn't really go out and, and do anything. So we kind of locked our, locked ourselves in and uh, um, set this up as a kind of recording project to kind of keep us sane as much as anything else. During <laughs> that time. Um, yeah, just chipped away at it, and I, I, I must admit, when I kind of started, I had in my uh, my head the the idea of I was kind of looking forward to playing it to Brendan and see what he thought of it. Unfortunately, that didn't come to fruition. Um, he passed away during um, lockdown. And it was when I was kind of looking at the, the the tracks that we ended up going with and kind of writing out um, um, a few words about them that you kind of you stand back and you realize how much of an influence that one particular person had over you. Um, and like pretty much every tune in the, the album, or uh, um, at least every set is touched by his kind of influence. So it felt kind of right to um, uh, to kind of dedicate to him to, um, to mark the, kind of contribution he had to my um to that's with my musical upbringing and the, the kind of course of my life how, how it's gone it's all been based uh, um upon his kind of influence and, and starting out with him so yeah it dedicated the um the, the memory to him um uh, a way of hopefully kind of marking his passing during a time where we we couldn't do it properly i don't feel um you know with restrictions there was no meeting up there was no um concert to celebrate his 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 achievements or his contribution so um uh, I, as a personal note i just wanted to kind of dedicate the album to him that's great and you actually named it a bird never flew on one wing was a saying that he used as shows here in the liner notes as well yeah that that's right and anyone that kind of um sees the note sees the the album title knows it's from him straight away <laughs> One of his infamous lines, it's most commonly used, you know, almost like a, a, as a drinking phrase, you know, like if you, if you just have one pint, it's like, oh, a bird never flew on one wing, have another one. <laughs> but um, it's also, it was also used by Brendan for, um, for 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 the pairing of tunes. If you ever heard a student, they just learned one tune, he'd always say to him, you know, a bird never flew on one wing, and which would be a kind of encouragement to seek out another tune to go with it. Commonly in traditional Irish music, we would pair tunes together. And sometimes um, more than two tunes, but often in pairs of tunes um and he put a, a lot of emphasis and a lot of importance on on the pairing of tunes you know not just grabbing two tunes that are in the same key and, and, and commonly you know in the, in the same time signature but looking for kind of melodic motifs and kind of phrases that you might find in commonality between them and even going so far as he, he would reconstruct elements of tunes to 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 almost kind of force in a, um an element of commonality between them like um and sticking in melodic variations into um two two tunes within a set um and to tie them in together so it's something that he put a lot of importance in and something that uh, kind of lesson that always stayed with me so um it's one as i said in the notes i hope it's kind of reflected in, to some extent in the recording um this kind of idea of being selective in your tune pairings and and, put, and putting them together but yeah the the, the phrase is one that he always uh, always uttered and was commonly known for a bird never flew on one wing so it felt um, a fitting title for the album yeah well it's, what a beautiful tribute man the the, the notes and and then the naming the, t- the album after that and i really feel irish music especially like the traditional irish music really always seems emotional and um 
you know, and and, and I think this album also uh, has that. I was just some very deep roots, and it's interesting to think bluegrass. When you really go back, it's been around. You know, it's not been around very long. Like Irish music, <laughs> I mean, it's it's centuries old, and it's so cool the way these things are passed down. And and this is a just a beautiful tribute to a to a person that did seem to leave a big mark on your life. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, um, yeah. I hope it's some power reflection of uh, the kind of contribution they gave, not just to me, but like to generations of um, musicians in London. He was a real focal point and an iconic teacher, but he also ran um, a, a venue, Ars Nigel, um, which means home of the Irish, but again, kind of affectionately just known as the Shed. And that was uh, a venue. Uh, a lot of teaching went on uh, on there, and a lot of um, uh, very well known kind of exponents of the, of the music would have passed through there. So. I remember as a kid like Martin Hayes passing through and... Gavin, Joe Burke, all these iconic players that would kind of do workshops with the, the young musicians and then do a concert in the evening. And then he, he ran record labels as well and um, did distribution for Shanaki, who um, um, I suppose some of you listeners might know them for their kind of reggae music, but they're, they're the kind of founders of the label, um, Dan Collins and Richard Nevins, I believe it was, um, were big fans of traditional Irish music and, and players. And so a lot of the older recordings from the 20s and 30s and um in the States, the kind of first recordings of Irish music, they re-released those on um, LP. Um, and so Brennan would, was a distributor for those as well. So he had he was a real epicenter for, for music in London, um, not just for the musicians that were there, but for any of the touring musicians coming over from Ireland or from the States that if they were in London, that's where they went. And as a result, all of us kids um, who were kind of hanging around at the club got to see all these fantastic um, performers firsthand at an age where we didn't really realise how lucky we were, you know. Um, we were only you know, 15 and kind of trying to sneak a, a, a bottle of Heineken or a bottle of Beck's uh, um, <laughs> the edge of the bar where no one was looking and then you get to see uh, see these amazing um, performers in, in a relatively small venue that you know, I remember sitting literally next door uh, beside Brendan beside his lap while he was doing sound at the front of the stage while these players were going and then leaning over to me saying well he got that tune from here or that's a version of this tune from there you know like so it, was a, it was an education that you, you didn't realise how, how blessed you were at the time that's invaluable to have somebody there that can give you that insight on things that, you know, especially pre-internet, you you know, now you can Google the history of a song and pull it up in, in seconds, you know, but back then, not, not at all. I mean, you might hear a song and think that person wrote it, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that, that little nugget can push you off in kind of different directions. And then you go listen to that person that they listen to and you, you know, you hear these kind of references, but I mean, I think that's the same in, in any music that, you know, the, 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 the kind of first it, first line of call m- might trigger you into something completely like from my own point of view uh, um my personal kind of experience 
I would be getting into the American side of uh, of uh, um, acoustic music a lot later than I would have been saying listen to to like trad and kind of classical. It's only really been in um, recent times that I would have gone listening to it quite quite heavily. And I um, like to my embarrassment, it was in some ways it was watching a video of Billy Strings uh, doing Doc Watson cover of Summertime that got me into to Doc Watson. I hadn't heard of him before, as I said, to kind of my embarrassment. Um, but it's that kind of like stepping stone of like, you listen to this amazing kind of modern exponent and you go, oh, wow, that's incredible. And then you listen to what they listen to or kind of reference back and, and then go back and listen to that and you realize their kind of wealth and depth that's there. And so it's the same thing with the traditional Irish music that a lot of the times um, you listen to the versions of the tunes. And yeah, if you've not heard it before, you might think it's their variations or it's their version of the tunes. But there's so many, so many times they're kind of um, they've listened to something before them. A lot of the times, the great recordings from the the twenties in in New York and other parts of America, and you hear all these kind of like wonderful older versions of the tunes, and that gets you into that that kind of older exponent. So yeah, I think I think that's. Um, uh, common within other genres not just trad you know they, they're it's great to see these kind of modern exponents and uh, and then start to see where it came from it's a lot easier when you've got youtube that tells you in the comments <laughs> oh, this wasn't um but uh yeah it, it, it was great to have that that kind of insight and that firsthand um, um knowledge um that kind of fills in the gaps and puts you in the those kind of roots of investigation you know going studying these these older musicians and finding out where these versions of tunes came from i mean that's how this music has stayed alive any sort of traditional music i think you know a lot of people billy strings is a great example i i mean his band is just unbelievably good great great players all steeped in tradition you know and sometimes people look from the other side and want to poo poo it as you know oh, it's not bluegrass or whatever but they've all done their homework and like you just said had you not seen a Billy Strings video, there's a chance you might not have discovered Doc Watson. And, and you know, it's, it's that's the way it works. Like people hear something new and if they love it and then they're going to go back and look at the and discover that old stuff. And, you know, it's still revered. And it's just different, different path. Yeah, that's it. Like you go and listen to like the, the Dan and um, uh, um, videos. look at it and then you can kind of uh, listen to the older recordings from the 20s of things like the Flanagan Brothers and you hear all these verses and tunes coming from a, uh, that they've kind of uh, um, reinvented. And rearrange with different instrumentation, um, but yet the the kind of source, the nucleus of, of it is is still the same. So yeah, I think that exactly right. That's the kind of especially when things that can be quite can be um, perceived as being quite traditional. You know, things like traditional Irish music or kind of uh, uh, bluegrass. That um, yeah, it's it's it, it's really interesting to see where the, the aspects of innovation can um, come in. And music is 
music is subjective. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. Um, and, you know, I, it's really important to have those kind of brilliant exponents like Billy Strings or uh, like Didan and that kind of push the envelope forward while still reflecting back and still paying homage to, to, to what got them to where they are, you know? Absolutely. So when you started playing, what did you start playing at when you when you signed up for those lessons? Were you a fiddle player? Uh, well, when I started, I was very young. Um, I was four. Um, oh, so wow. Brendan was... Yeah, so Brennan would stick, uh, well, the jelly baby, as, as he actually referred to us, but you never grow out of being a jelly baby. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we were all started on Tim Whistles, um, which is a cheap enough instrument to, to kind of get kids up and running, get them started. Um, and then when I was eight, I wanted to play the banjo, um, but I was too small. Um, so Brendan suggested taking up the mandolin to start, and that's what got me started on the mandolin. So I started that about um, the age of eight, um, and then did get a, ban a banjo uh, eventually, but uh, the mandolin had kind of established itself as my kind of instrument of choice. Um, so I kind of carried on playing with that. And I subsequently kind of put in a bit of effort into trying to learn how to play the fiddle as well. And I'd have an interest in that, but uh, I think, yeah, it'd be fair to say my mandolin is my main, main kind of interest uh, and main instrument. Um, so yeah, it was about eight when I started on the mandolin. It's interesting because you even mentioned, I think it's in the, uh, is it in the liner notes or maybe it's some of the uh, press kit, but mandolin isn't heard in as much Irish music as you would think. Yeah, they w it wouldn't be as um, uh, as prominent an instrument as, as some of the others within the tradition. So Br Brennan was a fiddle player. Well, he was a multi-instrumentalist. He, he was a very good mandolin player and banjo player, um, uh, and, but would his main instrument was um, fiddle, and he would teach classes um, with the fiddle, usually in large classes. So there could be 20, 30 kids in a class um, when he was teaching, as opposed to one-to-one. -one. And they would be a mixture of instruments as well. Um, um, so it was kind of, I suppose, some might find it an unusual way to kind of uh, teach instrumental music, having it as this kind of ensemble um, teaching with multiple instruments going at the same time. But yeah, many, many of the classes I would have attended learning the mandolin Brendan would have been playing the fiddle uh, and I suppose that kind of influenced my um, take on playing the, the mandolin um, it was very much kind of informed and uh, with an effort to, to emulate the fiddle repertoire and technique and technical ornamentation and all the things that would be associated with that because that's I suppose what I, I kind of grew up watching and listening to in in the classes so um, yeah Brent, Brendan would have been um, predominantly known as a fiddle player but kind of played and, and taught everything Wow, that's awesome, man. Who were some of your early influences? Did you did you like search out some mandolin players in the in the Irish genre that kind of yeah, sparked uh, you to the well I, I suppose I kind of took to the mandolin before I even really knew what the, the mandolin was or any kind of uh, uh, um, practitioners or exponents of it because it was you know, it was eight and it was kind of uh, looking to, to 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 start the banjo and it was seen as a kind of stepping stone. But then uh, subsequently, you know, kind of looking at um, my I suppose my influences would have been kind of drawn from not just mandolin players but looking at fiddle players and banjo players uh, um, as well. There were some um, exponents out there, but I suppose it's similar to, to now nowhere near the number that there would have been for the other instruments that would, would have had quite an affinity um, with the mandolin. Um, most mandolin players within traditional Irish music would play 
another instrument and the typical ones would be things like um guitar but uh, especially banjo and fiddle um because of the the tuning and because of the the setup like the, the mandolin the the, the fiddler uh, um the same uh, apart from the the kind of pairing of the the strings you know you've got um four sets and um spread over the fifths banjo in irish music is pretty much the same only down an octave um and with you know a larger scale um a larger stretch but um similar kind of um, finger spacing and, and, and finger placement. So a lot of um, um, trad mandolin players would play other instruments and as such as well would kind of draw into inspiration from those other uh, instruments as well. So I would have spent a lot of time listening to, to fiddle players. Um, as I said, Brendan had a, um, a label and there was a lot of very uh, highly regarded um, um performers, practitioners, um, and exponents in, in London. Um, some, some of the best traditional Irish musicians in the world were, were resident in London at one point or another. And, and as I said, quite a few passed through them. So <clears throat> we'd listen to them uh, an awful lot. But there were, um, you know, Mandarin players that um, had re recorded um, quite a bit. Um, um, Andy Irvine, uh, of course, with kind of his kind of individual and solo work, but also with kind of um, groups like um, um, Planksty uh, and as well um, Mick Maloney. Um, again, his kind of um, solo work, and the Johnsons and uh, and that. So um, yeah, the, they were kind of a few that I would have listened out to, and I would have kind of uh, had an influence, I suppose, not not just on. Um, uh, what you played, but also the kind of instrument you, you played as well, is because because of those kind of players um, that led me to buy my first kind of decent mandolin, uh, um, an overhaul Gibson, and I suppose it, again a bit like I'd say the bluegrass players, a lot of bluegrass um, musicians would be drawn to that F style and uh, um, and the the scroll because of the iconic players like Bill Monroe and all the subsequent ones that would have played those instruments and that's kind of seen as the the, the instrument to, to go for and um, and the sound um, associated with that genre. Similar thing with. Um, people like Andy Irvine and uh, Mick Maloney playing these um, paddlehead um, Gibson overhauls. So kind of influence and seeing those um iconic album covers that got me to buy my first uh, a decent mandolin which was uh, one of the gibson overhauls nice um, yeah yeah was yeah, it tough so. to find a gibson overhaul in london at that time yeah i was very fortunate in that the um in my kind of high school uh, secondary schools we, we'd refer to in high school the the guy who taught technology which would be another kind of passion of mine also played the mandolin and was into traditional irish music and he gave me when he found out that i was into the mandolin as well gave me a stack of records and helped me um with some kind of like uh um early kind of uh building early electronic devices like um um, preamps and MIDI through um, pedals and all these kind of uh, stuff, the, wow. the technology, all, all these things. But he also played the mandolin and he had 
Now, I was kind of actually thinking back, back about it prior to this. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was like a 1920s um, a brown top um, paddle head. It didn't have a truss rod cover. Um, but So I think it was an A2 um, 1920s um, um, Gibson. And I played that and I, and I just fell in love with it. I yeah. Like, I need one of I asked my dad, he came home from school and I said, I'd, um, I'd like a Gibson mandolin. He said, I'm not getting you a Gibson mandolin, but I'll get you a job. So he got me a job um, <laughs> summer, um, stacking, um, moving papers up and down different flights of stairs. We worked for the Bank of Ireland in, in, in London. So they got me a kind of uh, um, a job kind of moving stuff around and moving papers around and that helped to kind of save up a, a few quid um for um for mandolin and he knew a dealer um based in london um called phil alexander who's still um still kind of um working and playing um who um had uh, mandolins and at the end of the summer took all my hard-earned pennies and went round to um, his house and I went to his um, showroom and he had a couple of gibson mandolins there so was able to find one there so yeah Lucky enough that there was, I suppose, a kind of uh, a selection, but it, it it wasn't the sort of thing that was mass readily easily to, to find. I was very fortunate that I had someone like that to put me in contact with the dealer who was able to kind of find uh, um, find me an instrument um, or find uh, had a selection of instruments and find one that I liked. Um, so yeah, I, I, I and I still have that mandolin. And I'm still very fond of it. Oh, that's um, awesome! Yeah, yeah. So, um, they're, they're, oh, they're great instruments. There's a very unique sound to them. They're not without their faults. Um, um, there's kind of some of the, I think from a, um, a technical point of view, there's been advancements in the kind of construction and design uh, of uh, arch top mandolins, but they, they have a, um, a, a really unique sound to them. And you hear certain exponents like Marla Fibish um, playing them and really pulls out that kind of kind of throaty um, um, sound that they have, which is distinct from something like an F5. Um, there's a there's a really interesting kind of tonal um, characteristic to them, you know? Oh, I love um, them. They're, they're, yeah, they're lovely instruments. I have a pumpkin top sitting right next to me here. <laughs> I oh, love it. Yeah. yeah, mine's a 1918 um, pumpkin. Um, pumpkin top and it's um yeah it's great great instruments really nice kind of sounds of nice beefy necks on them as well yeah yeah for sure so this um, on top of this being a an incredible player and, and now getting circling around to this album um the first thing i was really taken by was just how beautiful the sounds are captured Done a lot of audio engineer work before recording this album of your own. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's kind of what I focused on when I first moved over to Ireland. Um, what what I was at. Um, the, so I did a prior to moving over here. I, I, I did a degree in kind of classical music, and while I was there, I met um, with a, a, a fellow called Lamont Gillespie, who was another student of Brendan's actually, um, but he was studying classical um, violin there at the time and um, got playing with him an awful lot in London. 
And as a result of that, um, he had a long-standing um, um, musical partnership with a, a well-known um, Irish uh, musician, um, John Blake. Um, if anyone kind of listens to Trad, you've probably heard an album of him playing, and he's very highly regarded um, backer uh, on guitar, bazooki, piano, pretty much anything you can ask him to play, he'll be able to play it. Um, but so they, they they play together regularly and they wanted to record an album. And at the time, none of us had any money or, you know, the, the idea of going into a commercial studio, it just wasn't, it wasn't an option. Uh, and I was kind of studying music technology um, at um, Trinity uh, um, as an elective. So I was like, well, this could work for me. I'll, I'll use this as my project for the, the end of year and um, I'll record you you lads and you just pay for the, the few bits of equipment that I need to, 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 to record it. And so that that was the kind of first album that got me uh, uh, um, introduced into to, to recording. And off the back of that, I um, signed up to do a master's in University of Limerick um, uh, T. Uh, doing uh well sorry doing a master's in, uh, in music technology and again they had electives in um sound recording um and uh, audio production so I kind of focused in on on those and at ul um at the time well still now there's the other uh, department is there i was kind of in the computer science department but there was another department which is the irish world academy of music and dance um which is a kind of structured academic um, framework for traditional Irish music offering undergraduates, masters and PhDs in, in traditional Irish music. So I started kind of working there as well, recording um, at first kind of some of the students, but also kind of some of the staff and the, the people that were passed through there. And then just, yeah, I, from that, it kind of built into a kind of a, a niche of recording traditional Irish music. I don't really record any other genre. Um, I've, spend time like you know i have a big interest in acoustic music outside of um uh, of trad in, in terms of like listening to it um uh, but uh and um i have done some kind of work recording but really my kind of main interest is in, in recording traditional irish music because that's uh, what i'm i kind of play and that's what i feel kind of knowledgeable about and a lot of those kind of um Recording setups, it's almost like a, um, a two-role gig in, in terms of being like engineer and kind of producer because sometimes it can, you can be just the only person sitting on the other side of the class and you're kind of trying to evaluate if that's a good take or a bad take. And um, that's an aspect of the, um, um, the, the role that I, and the, the process that I, I kind of really enjoyed. And by the, by the end of the music college, I think I kind of um, realized that maybe being up on stage and and uh, and doing and touring and that kind of thing wasn't for me and that being behind the glass and kind of helping out uh, in recording and being able to kind of give some uh, input into that and hopefully try and capture a moment in time try and capture um, uh, um, something going on put it down on tape um that would have a, a, a long-standing kind of appeal you know um so that that's that's what I've kind of focused in on and I've been very fortunate as a result to to, to work with a lot of people in trad and um and to work with them them on albums so yeah that, that that's what kind of led me uh, to that um uh, a real a real interest in in that role of sitting on the other side of the glass and helping a, a musician kind of capture what they're, they're trying to put down on tape or, or capture a moment in time um uh, translate down onto onto audio and so yeah for the as I said for the, the project was kind of a um an imposed lockdown project so um we're fortunate 
it was just the two of us in the house. I had a, a spare room, so I was able to set up a, a couple of uh, mics in there and just leave them for the summer because um, I, I've tried before. I'm not sure if you, you've tried. Um, I'm sure other people listening would have done it, like recording yourself and listening to it back afterwards. It's oh, just, yeah. It's terrible. It's, <laughs> but, like, imagine even editing a podcast and listening to yourself talk. It's terrific. I certainly won't be listening to this. You know, <laughs> because it's terrific to, to listen to yourself back. And I think listening to, you know, to your own music is in some, in some ways even worse. So um, I just I, I set up the computer in there and I um, left it running for the summer with a little app on the phone so I could go in and turn it on and off for, for, and pause for recording. And then just walked in there for an hour or two every day and just played um, and then left it um, after the summer until Christmas I was back at work. And then we broke up for Christmas to have a listen to it because I knew if I listened to it straight away afterwards, I'd just delete everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was the kind of process of it. If you throw enough mud at the wall, some of it's going to stick. Oh, man. Um, don't, don't listen to it um, straight, away, straight away after it. So, yeah, it was a, a kind of when the first kind of week or two of of the project was setting up microphones, playing a little bit, bringing that upstairs into a different room and listening to it back over a decent set of monitors and moving mics around until you kind of felt that you got a sound that was a reasonable um, capture of uh, uh, what you were, what the instrument sounded like in in real life and, you know, just taking it from there. So what was the, um, what were the mics that you used? Uh, mainly 414s and a 451. Um, uh, so, yeah, for, for the mandolin, it was, yeah, a, a gold 414 and a 451 kind of blended together. Uh, for, I think it was pretty much the same for, for most of the, the instrumentation. I have a, a clip-on um, DPA that we use for the, um, uh, there's a duet track of fiddle, just to kind of get a bit of a cleaner signal. But t- to be honest, most of it was just sticking up um, 414s uh, and moving them around the room until you kind of got a sound that kind of worked. So, um, yeah, they were the predominant ones. Did you use any like baffling or anything like that? Or you just set them up in the room and just kind of. Yeah. Um, so I have a room that I use for kind of teaching and for um, doing my mixing at home. And I have a, um, a lot of gobos um, well-made uh, GIK acoustic panels that are on stands so that if I up here, I can set them up around me um, to kind of deaden down the room. There's a few permanently mounted to the ceiling. Then I can take the gobos downstairs. Um, and if I'm doing any recording, can kind of create kind of mini booths. So I use them to, to kind of deaden down the room as much as possible. And then just <laughs> all the kind of uh, spare sheets and blankets that you would normally have for guests <laughs> coming you weren't going to need for the next little while for the pandemic. Yeah, just threw them over everything and to, to den down the space as much as possible. Um, so, yeah, there is a little bit of that. You're never going to get the sound of uh, the natural sound of an instrument in an open environment that you can get in a kind of a large room, be that a kind of recording studio or a, a kind of a, a church, a cathedral environment, but needs must and everything. So, uh, yeah, it was a case of just deaden down the room as much as possible and get the mics in a decent enough position to kind of capture it as, as accurately as possible. And, yeah, um, just to do what you can with what you, you know. Well, it sounds amazing, man. It really, really does. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it's it's probably tough to say, um, I don't say favorite songs on the album because I mean I'm sure every one of them is, but there has to be a couple on here like when you knew you were going into this project that had to make the recording. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about one or two of those songs. Uh, yeah. To be 
to be honest, there was quite a lot that I walked in thinking that would make it and it, re- and it didn't. Um, no kidding. Yeah, well, I wrote out about, I think I wrote out about 50 sets and then tried to record them on numerous different instruments. And then when I had them, I'd say there was about 35 that I liked. That I, I, well, no, there was 15 that I hated. Um, so <laughs> we then forward, I forwarded on the 35 to Blakey, or John Blakey, who's the, the, the backer on the album and a couple of others, and then just started cutting them down. Any ones that, you know, when you've got that many, there's no point being precious about anything. So any ones that people weren't uh, enamored by, just get kind of get rid of them. And that's what kind of was left kind of presented at the end. So I didn't, well, the ones I did walk in thinking, yeah, I definitely want to record that. A lot of them didn't make the cut. Um, yeah, I suppose a, a couple, um, the, the, but ultimate track, um, the Mullingar Lee and the flogging reel. the first tune is is taken from a version of Brendan uh, and it was one of his favorite tunes and he used to really tear into it so um I kind of uh, went for it uh, as well and um I kind of like it in some ways I was conscious of the fact that you know the way that we recorded that it was recorded during the pandemic there should be a reflection rather than just throw backing on everything and there are a number of tracks where I've tried to make it quite dense dense sounding with the backing but there should be a kind of accurate representation of what it actually sounded like and so those kind of solo tracks um, that one and the, there's a banjo one as well and I suppose that the solo tracks of the banjo fiddle and uh, a mandolin uh, are a true representation of what it actually sounded like at the time in the room you know uh, and inversely uh, I'm, I I wanted the aim I, I, I had in my head when I kind of started the record was to put on put together a representation of, of the mandolin as quite upfront and in in some ways quite aggressive and uh, and forceful um, as I don't say a counterbalance to to, um, to to other recordings but you know it's something I hadn't really heard bef- before in in traditional Irish music um, most of the the, the mandolin playing you'd have a lot of exponents that when they were playing hard-edged stuff, they'd pick up the banjo or they they pick up the fiddle and the mandolin was kind of reserved for the more kind of laid back, um, uh, uh, softer kind of pieces, you know, things like O'Carolyn and the, that, that kind of tradition and uh, and um, kind of down-tempo jigs where I wanted to, to try and record some stuff where I was like going for it and for also to have this kind of big sound um behind it and so there's a lot of layering going on with blakey there's only one backer on it um and, and so i re- kind of affectionately refer to it as the wall of blake where it's you know there's two guitars there's bazooki there's a high strung um uh, guitar and there's a piano going at the same time um and it's just one guy um uh, and everything's kind of layered and kind of spent a lot of time and you know, thinking about kind of uh, how how they were kind of piecing together within the mix to, to give it, give this mandolin this this bed of backing behind it uh, in support, so that uh, um, yeah, as hearing the mandolin kind of sitting on top of that density of uh, of backing 
wasn't something I'd heard massively before. Um, and so, like, kind of, so, like, the first track uh, would be an example of that where there's just layers and layers of flaky. it's one of the things that I kind of find interesting with it from a production point of view is yeah you've got all the, these elements of backing on numerous different instruments different guitars and different tunings and that but it's still all one guy it's one brain behind it and things kind of click in together very well like Blakey knows exactly where things are, are coming up from the previous um, takes because he's recorded them and he's able to kind of um, lock in together so there's kind of places where it, it you know uh, he's thought very kind of carefully of subtle chords that will help uh, in the transition from one part to the other. And it's the whole, um, or every line is in on it, you know, and they all kind of um, work here, kind of uh, linked in together. So that was a, the, an interesting aspect of the, the the kind of production, working with Blakey and, and trying to get everything clear on the mat. So it wasn't drowned behind four or five guitars. It was still upfront and prominent, but there was this kind of enveloping sound uh, um, that kind of wrapped around it um, uh, and hearing the, the this kind of strings bouncing off each other. So, so yeah, that would be maybe the two kind of aspects that I enjoyed there. I thought it was important to have uh, a representation being entirely accurate of just playing completely solo, even on instruments like the banjo, we typically have um, some form of um, accompaniment, uh, but also the, the kind of exploring this kind of, as I said, the wall of Blake of uh, this the, this layering of sound and, and creating a nice bedrock of uh, of accompaniment for the, uh, for the um, mandolin to sit on top and looking at the kind of, Tombral similarities of things like the, the guitar and especially the high strung guitar and the bazooki that, you know, it, it almost disappears the tombral line between the lead instrument of, of mandolin and those aspects of strings um, blended in around it. So let's talk about your uh, your main axe here, your number one mandolin. Yeah, um, so the main instrument I play on uh, this is an LSA4. Uh, an um, LS and um, yeah, it's a, it's a great instrument. Um, I'm very, very happy with did you pick that up right from Tom or did you buy it via, I guess, what's, how did you acquire it? I bought it in um, Tamco, the, um, the acoustic music company in Brighton. Um, we're Brighton's a, a seaside town um, or city. It's a large town, small city, uh, about 50 miles south of um, London, just on the coast. Um, and Trevor, um, it's actually recently retired, so the, the the shop has just gone now. Um, but it, it was a a frequent um, contributor to the Mandolin Cafe, um, and I'd seen the the um, shop. I'd recently bought another mandolin. Um, I played that on the the um, on the album as well as uh, Gerard um, Overhaul, and he had um, there was one of Max's instruments in there as well it was similar to mine but it was an F-hole so I wanted to go in there and see what that was like to kind of compare it and uh, my wife hadn't been to Brighton yet as I said Brighton's a really cool um, really cool seaside um, city um, so we just jumped on the train went down there and went into Tamco just window shopping as you do um, um, but you know as you kind of alluded to earlier outside of the States, it's really difficult to kind of get that context of instruments to, to walk into a place and try 
a load of these instruments against each other because it's it's all well and good going online and looking at um, websites, even with great kind of photography, and even the, a lot of the websites now have um, uh, you know will upload clips of great players playing the instrument. But it's a different thing to pick it up and play it yourself. Um, so it was a great opportunity to go down. I wanted to go down and, and see that instrument. It was, it was a really good instrument. I was kind of looking through that, and I had seen this one kind of online. And the price point was a little bit more than uh, a little bit uh, uh, out of my league, but then kind of went in there and saw the instrument. And um, I don't know if you've have you ever seen Jaws the the film? And there's a scene where Brody <laughs> kind of sees a shark, and they kind of they pull out the camera and they zoom in at the same time, and the perspective gets all messed up. It was kind of like that seeing the instrument. <laughs> oh, hey, like the the it's I've. I heard Tom talking about it in an interview before and talking about the standard of um, um, stain and finish that's done by, um, I think it's, is it Josh Luttrell? He's on, he's on um, Instagram. He, he finishes instruments for Tom. I think he does it for a few other uh, makers as well. Like uh, um, Andrew Murray uh, gets instruments stained by him, but they're, they're breathtaking. Like to actually see the instrument in person was like, oh, wow, this really is a remarkably pretty instrument and then played it and yeah the setup on it the sound everything about it was within five seconds just like how am I going to afford this thing <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I had it I was I spoke very nicely uh, um, to the wife and I spoke very nicely to the uh, bank manager and managed to get that sorted and so yeah uh, was able to get a hold of that instrument and very very glad I, I did it's a spectacular mandolin really really happy with I, I got two more questions for you here. And the first one is if you had 10 minutes a day to work on something to uh, improve your playing, what would you work on? There's always kind of room to, to, to work on kind of right-hand technique. And um, I, I'd, I'd say if I was to look at it from a point of view of kind of reflecting on this genre and look at, look at this at music, one of the most common techniques uh, and, uh, and tools um, for technical ornamentation would be the triplet. And it's something that a lot uh, and uh, I, a lot of um, people when they start doing it you know trying to get that triplet rhythm it also become it, it almost becomes uh, disassociated with the rest of their technique that is like a hand spasm that kind of like to get that pick over the string and back and forth in a real quick succession and um, that becomes disassociate with the rest of their uh, people's techniques so that when they play fast or play slow, the triplet rhythm is exactly the same. Uh, and it was something I was kind of um, um, guilty of uh, when I first started kind of classical lessons. And I, I went to a, a classical teacher um, in in London, Alison Stevens, um, and she was a real stickler for technique. Um, and so for Two years playing with her, I played with a lollipop um, stick broken into two halves, like a splint taped around my thumb to keep my thumb locked in position Whoa. and rolled up sock underneath my arm to kind of get me playing from the wrist and, instead of playing from the, uh, uh, from the fingers, but also practicing to, to ironing that out. And she had a, a technique of just play, you know, ding, 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 speed it up as much as you can, but never let the, the kind of steps break never have that disjointed thing and it doesn't matter how fast you get to that's not the the, the objective the objective is the sp the smooth speed up of your picking and then speeding uh, and then going back down without any break in technique 
the the high speed at the end will come with time. That's just kind of practice. It's going through that kind of motion, going like driving a manual car or stick car, going through the gears and being able to go through them slowly and not having them as kind of um, separate separate entities. So that's something I still kind of do, especially as a kind of warm up, would be to kind of make get that right hand moving and you know it'd almost be a, a gauge of like how fast can you go and how how warmed up are you are you you know how well is your your kind of your, your muscles kind of uh, Responding. But I think it works very well for traditional Irish music for, for that kind of technical ornamentation to, to prevent you from um, having the triplet as a separate entity of your technique, as this kind of muscle spasm to just kind of um, get it, which is so easy to fall into when you're first starting out and, and playing to, you know, and, and the, especially on the mandolin with the high tension strings to get a pick to, to move over the strings. Uh, it, it can be easy to kind of fall into to that pattern. So, that's something I, I thought worked um, really well because it, it's not just the technique that affects it, it affects your musicality as well because you want to be able to sl- play a jig slowly or fast or play a real slow or fast and have the, the, the ornamentation fit in with the time frame rather than it just to be kind of like a, 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 a motor kind of reflex of um, flipping, flipping your hand. So, yeah, that, that's something that I, I think is it, it, great for people looking at this, this music and looking at that the technique because that's a really obvious technical ornamentation that everyone puts into tunes. Whenever you see a long note or you see two notes together, you can stick in a triplet and making sure that that um that your right hand responds to them well. So that that would be something I would I would spend 10 minutes a day kind of warming up and and stretching out to kind of help with making sure that the there's a nice fluidity in the technical ornamentation in in the music. Man, that's that is next level dedication right there. And then the final question is, do you have a favorite beer? Do I have a favorite? I've got to say Guinness. It's on the inside cover. <laughs> it's on the inside cover. Deliberately twisted to the side for any kind of copyright in- issues, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, but, yeah, it is, uh, but it's funny, like... The, craft beer in the um in the states is fantastic i love i love going to uh states and trying all of them i got a ryan uh ryan um Rheingeist, um sticker on their case um from one of the um breweries there in um cincinnati and it's great that i love going to to, to the states the craft beer that over there is fantastic oh yeah uh, thank goodness because the guinness is horrible <laughs> i'm glad you said it and not me um <laughs> well where can everybody find you sean what's the easiest way to keep up with you um, uh, on the website uh, would probably be the easiest thing www.seankegan.ie and then uh, kind of post on Facebook as well and kind of lurk in the, in the cafe uh, from time to time awesome man it was an absolute pleasure talking with you congratulations on the uh, on the brand new album it, it is fantastic I couldn't recommend it enough and it's so cool that you uh, the digital release will come with the uh, liner notes because it really does add like a whole a whole another layer to an already rec- rec- or incredible recording you know so congratulations uh thanks very much thanks uh thanks for having me on and uh thanks again to the cafe for uh um, um putting me in contact with yourself scott in the cafe and and for everything else that they do you know it's a it's a wonderful uh, resource you know like i i wouldn't have heard of gerard mandolins or ellis mandolins or blue chip picks or tone guards or any of those things if it wasn't for kind of like lurking around on the forums there so um i'm very grateful for all they've done it's you know had, had a big impact on uh, the way i play music so thanks thanks to them as well